This podcast is supported by LinkedIn. An incredibly deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. With LinkedIn ads, you'll be able to target over 70 million decision makers all in one place. No deep voice required. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash marketer to claim your credit. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Kara Swisher, and you're listening to Sway. My guest today is Elliot Higgins. He created Bellingcat, the open-source investigative team that's part online detective agency and part news outlet. Higgins Group has broken some of the biggest stories in recent years. Bellingcat found evidence linking Russia to the downing of Flight MH17, identified alt-right protesters in Charlottesville, and unveiled the alleged poisoners who targeted Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Bellingcat has become a major thorn in the side of powerful and dangerous people like Vladimir Putin. I wanted to understand how Higgins decides what's worth investigating and what distinguishes his organization from online vigilantes. But first, I asked him how he came up with the name Bellingcat in the first place. So um, Bellingcat is uh, it's based off the fable um, of Belling the Cat, where there's a group of mice who are very frightened of a large, ferocious cat. So they decide that they need a plan to deal with it. And they come up with the idea of putting a bell around the cat's neck but then they realize they don't actually know how to do that because there's a huge cat and they're mice so we're in a way teaching people how to bell the cat so that they can hear the cat coming so they can hear it coming and be kind of warned of it so you are the mice presumably in this scenario yeah people always call us like the belling cats and we're no we're we're the mice so yeah all right well anyway but you are the mice in this idea is that you are facing some ferocious people that could eat you essentially and that you are going to make sure people can hear them coming or hear them and what they're doing in a stealthy way, for example. Yeah, and uh, that takes all kinds of different forms. I mean, the the work of Ban and Cat covers a pretty wide range of topics. I mean, a lot of it does end up focusing on Russia, but that's because Russia's up to quite a lot of uh, pretty bad stuff at the moment. But we write on a whole range of different topics. And recently, we've been writing a lot about the kind of origins of uh, Q and, uh, you know, clues to who his identity might be. We've written about the kind of violence of January 6th in Washington, D.C. We've looked into kind of Saudi airstrikes in Yemen, uh, just like a whole range of different topics, looking at, um, you know, how open source material can be used to investigate those topics. I want you to explain what open source means. So uh, open source information is anything that's basically publicly available information, information that you can either kind of go out and find or you can buy, for example, satellite map imagery. What changed over the last 10 years or so is how much of that information is available and who it's available to. Because of really the rise of smartphone technology from 2007 onwards uh, and around that, the development of social media sharing apps, people are sharing information all the time. Alongside that, you have the development of things like Google Earth making satellite imagery accessible to everyone. Google Street View, so you had a view from the ground you know, anywhere in the world, virtually. And by combining those two kind of um, almost revolutions in technology, that allows us to do this kind of new form of online open source investigation where anyone with a laptop and uh, internet connection can look at videos and images and information coming from a range of different incidents and countries 
and start actually piecing together and verifying what this is actually showing. I want to know how you got started in doing this kind of digital forensics. For me, it actually really started off um, in 2010 with the events of the Arab Spring. Back then, I was just working in uh, kind of finance and admin jobs, nothing really kind of grand. But I had an interest in what was happening in the Arab Spring, and I was someone who also spent an awful lot of time on the internet. So I was part of these kind of online debates and discussions. So over about a period of a year, I did that more and more and started to build up a following, particularly among people who are interested in the conflict in Syria, be they journalists, people at think tanks, even you know people in the kind of political classes and various experts, because no one else was really bothering to look at these videos in a kind of any sort of analytical way. And then in 2013, I actually, using these videos, discovered the Saudi secret smuggling operation to the Syrian rebels because they were getting all these new weapons from the um, former Yugoslavia. I figured out where they were coming from and actually working with the New York Times, uh, mm-hmm. we were able to establish that this was part of this secret smuggling operation. So. What you were doing was basically gumshoe journals and using online tools. I mean, most journals would go in and see them or take pictures of them and see them. In this case, you're being provided photos because everybody is taking and uploading photos all around the world, essentially. Yeah, I mean, it's it basically just looking at the evidence and figuring out what it, it said. One advantage I had, funnily enough, was because I didn't speak a word of Arabic, I could only see what was being shown. So if someone was saying something in a video and they were telling a whole story, it didn't matter to me. But I could see that that object on the ground was, you know, like a, a cluster munition or very particular kind of, you know, barrel bomb design. And you're doing all of this online from England? Yeah, I mean, I was just sat on my sofa every night kind of looking through the latest videos. So how much of Bellingcat's open source forensics are based on social media like this? Yeah, I mean, it, it is really any public information that we can find. It's people posting on the internet forums and or YouTube or, you know, weird social media sites you never really hear about because they're for like some really minor obscure groups. So, you know, for example, um, when we were doing our work on the downing of Malaysian Airlines Flight 17, we were looking into the soldiers who were connected to the Russian military brigade that sent the missile launcher over the border. And we looked into them using the V-Contacti profile of um, the 53rd Air Defense Brigade, which they belong to. So that's like Russia's equivalent of Facebook. Then we looked at all the people who were following them, and a lot of them were the soldiers serving in that um, brigade. And then uh, we looked at their user IDs as search for those user IDs on different social media platforms, which then revealed more and more information about them, what they were doing, who their friends were. And we used that basically to map out the entire network of the 53rd Air Defense Brigades, every member photograph rank. We also used an internet forum for the wives, girlfriends and mothers of these soldiers where they were discussing their concerns about their, you know, sons and, you know, husbands yeah. and boyfriends, right. giving details of their military operations because they all kind of felt like it was this secure place, but it was a public forum. So it's anywhere where there's information being shared online. And, you know, obviously that's a lot of different places. Right. The Russian government has cracked down on soldier selfies and things like that, because essentially they were saying where they were, or what they were doing. And so you could make links between them, which is, you know, a banquet for intelligence services and you yourself. Yeah. So your investigations really build on platforms that do a terrible job with privacy, Facebook, for example, yeah. or YouTube. And you're, are you troubled by the idea that your success depends on their surveillance and their terrible privacy? 
I mean, it's almost a paradox of the kind of work we do because a, a really good example of this is Facebook Graph Search, which is a search tool they introduced um, several years ago that allows you to do very complicated searches on any individuals or groups of individuals. Like you could find out people who work in Washington, D.C., who go to uh, the nearest Starbucks to the White House, who, you know, like really granular searches, which was fantastic if you were investigating people because you could find out all sorts of things and the kidding connections. It was also fantastic if you were Cambridge Analytica and you wanted to swing, you know, the boat. That's right. Or if you were Russia and you wanted to swing the 2016 election. So that got shut down. So we lost a really good investigation tool. But it also meant that society also lost something that was beginning to become quite toxic to it. And you, you have all these kind of paradoxes. You know, we want people to be safe and secure online, but we also want people to be sharing as much information as possible about certain specific things. Yeah, yeah. you, you kind of benefit from the shitty um, privacy settings that these companies have or and people's demented need to share. Like at this point, because people are carrying surveillance devices every day of their lives. We see every single day of our, our work how often people overexpose them. It's like when we're looking into cases of corruption, the easiest way to look into a corrupt individual is look at their um, children and their wife's social media accounts because they will have all their sports cars and their holidays all over that. Whilst the, right. the person might be quite humble in their kind of own social media posts. So This is why I've switched off all location and access to Facebook, for example. This is the thing. And so people have got, you know, a, a way to share really useful information about incidents that we're interested in. And we want people to kind of pull out our phone and, you know, feel an airstrike or, you know, the remains of a bomb or, you know, someone committing a crime. But we don't want them kind of overexposing their lives. It's like the My Activity thing on Google where you can see mm -hmm. you go there and they've got a map of every single place you've been to. So you also helped ID violent extremists at the 2017 uh, Charlottesville rally. Uh, on January 6th, there was a riot at the Capitol. So walk me through it step by step how your investigators sprang into action on January 6th. When did you first learn about the attack? I mean, really, when it was, I was kind of on Twitter and then, you know, watching it kind of escalate because you had Donald Trump's speech. And so we were kind of just generally watching it as kind of consumers of news. And then when we realized what was happening, that's kind of when we sort of got into action collecting these videos. Who did you call first? I want to, I want actual details. So what did you do first? You're like, you're like, I bet these people are going to record. We're doing crimes. Look at us. Yeah, I mean, we were discussing it, you know, in the build-up to it, you know, should we do what we did with Charlottesville? And, you know, we were thinking, surely they wouldn't be stupid enough to kind of record what they're doing again, but we were wrong. Um, so with Charlottesville, we collected as many videos as possible. So we did the same thing with January 6th. We put a big kind of call for material. But the real difference there was the massive amount of material there was, you know, from January 6th compared to 2017, because everyone had a phone there, everyone was streaming. So then when that was happening, we already had like a Google sheet and a Google form set up for people to fill in and on twitter we just said if you have a video could you you know pull it into this sheet and then we'd go through it so we had these 1000 videos or so and then we kind of deduplicated them or you know figured out which ones had clips in and that was literally watching every video and you know just <laughs> recognizing i've seen that video you know 200 cells beforehand um and then sorting them by kind of location um, so we had like the inaugural entrance was one location. I spent several weeks looking at all the videos of that to put them into uh, sequential order and also figure out their physical position. So we had kind of then a thousand videos from all over that area, but we knew when they were filmed and where they were filmed. And that was weeks of work to do that. But what do you do with it? Law enforcement is also working on trying to identify rioters continuing to do. Do you partner with them um, or intelligence services? 
No, we were actually approached by the FBI on this one, saying if we could kind of, you know, give them any assistance, but we don't want to do the job of law enforcement for them, um, especially when they're so well resourced. I mean, we're a small organization with a budget of about 1.7 million a year, which, you know, so it's something we had to build up to. What we didn't want to do, though, is end up in a situation where we're saying, oh, we've got to figure out who that guy who or that guy is, because we know from experience, even if you get some people right, plenty of people get misidentified. Yeah. And that's exactly what happened. The kind of internet community formed to hunt down, you know, the people responsible. And they identified a bunch of wrong people who ended up getting harassed online. And we've seen that, you know, going back years. It, you know, the Boston Marathon Reddit investigation being a good example of that, where they identified two suspects because of this kind of groupthink that occurred by with having hundreds of people involved. And in my experience, the more complicated the investigation, the less people you want involved, because that's when you start having kind of groupthink emerge. Right. So one of the things that I think was important that you mentioned just now was this idea of people misidentifying people. There are a lot of online vigilantes. So we saw after the Capitol attack, many citizens in online forums combed through social media trying to identify rioters. There's a thing called due process. There's a thing called presuming innocent before guilt. How do you think about that? Well, um, in the specific cases of January 6th, we knew from past experience that we didn't want loads of people looking at, into the identities of these people because we knew that would just be a disaster. So we, you know, we said on our you know, social media account that we aren't looking for people. You know, it's the FBI's job to do that. We knew that wouldn't stop people from doing it, but we tried to discourage it wherever we could. But, you know, when we're doing our own work, when we do identify people, we're looking at details that aren't just, oh, that guy has a similar face. Like when we're looking at the Charlottesville uh, kind of individuals we were looking into, one guy had a very distinct pattern of moles on his neck. And that's kind of the key thing that allowed us to be 100% sure we were looking at the right person. Um, Something that's also quite distinct, when we're looking, for example, for these Russian spies, looking at their fake passports and their real identity documents, not only do you have the shape of their face, but their ear shape is actually quite distinct as well um so you can use that almost as like kind of a a fingerprint if you look at their ear shapes kind of very carefully in passport photographs we also now work with universities who have expertise in facial recognition which can be wrong one of the things that i think you probably are aware of most journalists even though they sort of get pilloried are in fear of getting things wrong and hurting people i think it's sort of uh drilled into you at a very early age as a journalist and and uh, you know especially with online people make all these leaps I mean, in a sense, for me, it's kind of uh, was always informed by kind of the origins of my own career path, which is basically arguing with people on the Internet and knowing that people on the Internet, A, will argue over any point to a ridiculous lens. They indeed will. And if you get something wrong, they will never let you forget it. So those are kind of the two things that inform our work. Plus, now we also have Russia basically doing the same thing, because if we get something wrong, Russia won't let us forget it either. So we're, that's kind of, you know, I think informs all our work. Plus the way we actually work is we're often, um, it's quite collaborative. For example, with the Russia stuff we're doing at the moment, there's like four or five of us in a group who are discussing this stuff quite regularly, uh, examining each other's works, questioning kind of each other. And then that goes to the editorial team who then go through it and then ask more and more questions on top of that. All right. Uh, last summer, Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny was hospitalized in Siberia after being poisoned with the nerve agent Novichok. He was then treated in Germany. You launched a major investigation into who was behind this. Um, how did you start working with Navalny? Well, funnily enough, it was um, really a part of an ongoing investigation we've been doing since 2018 with the Around poisonings. Yes, because in 2018, we started looking into the um, identities of the two people connected to the Sergei Skripal poisoning in Salisbury in the UK. And using um, Russian kind of bureaucratic Mm -hmm. sources, we were able to find their real identities and show they were two GRU officers. That then led us to the identity of a third GRU officer who was involved with that case and that they were part of this Unit 291. 
0.55. The GRU, that's Russia's military intelligence service. Go ahead. And then, yeah, and then um, that led then to an investigation in Bulgaria where those same uh, that same unit was involved with another poisoning. That investigation led us to the phone records which connected them to basically a series of research laboratories in Russia mm-hmm. where there were chemists working there who had been working on the Novichok program. Right. So this is a, a sort of a daisy chain of poisoners. And so one, if they did it in one place, it stands to reason they might try it in another or they might use the same people. And we've the same source for the poisoning. So when um, Navalny was poisoned, uh, we got the phone records of the scientists who work at these places, and they were actually calling up FSB teams and being called by these FSB officers. So we had to identify who these numbers were. There were FSB officers, we got their travel records, and it just happened. How did you get those? By the way, FSB is Federal Security Service for Russia. How did you get those records? You could literally like go to like uh, some Russian internet forum where some guy's selling them for like a thousand rubles for anyone you want in the, if you've got the passport number. So these are things presumably our government keeps under wraps. Yeah. So we got phone records, for example. Now, phone records aren't just the phone numbers they've called, but the cell phone tower they're connected to, which means you can track their movements. We were also able then to get, you know, along with the flight records, um, we got um, their real identity documents and their fake identity documents because we realized there was a process they used when they created a fake identity, um, which allowed us to identify their real identity. They would use the same first name, a date of birth that was exactly one year different, and usually <laughs> the maiden name of their wife or girlfriend. And their password and, was one, two, three, four. Well, honestly, we have done some investigations where we have found the passwords, and it's always like really stupid passwords they use, like GRU1 and stuff like that. We found oh, wow. some when we found their social media accounts where they literally call themselves something like the Terminator or like some oh, assassination related name. It's utterly ridiculous. But we pieced this together and then we went to Navalny's team and started talking to him um, and his team about, you know, what had happened. He was really surprised because he thought he would find out in like 40 years time that the FSB poisoned him, not literally the people who were like at his hotel the night he was poisoned. Not these chuckleheads. And then um, we basically worked with him. He he wanted to make sure everything we were using was also not coming from like MI5 or the CIA. So he wanted to know every single source we were using. So he went through, a, you know, about I think about a month-long process of him and his team double-checking all our findings. We got CNN involved as well, who also double-checked all our findings and sources as well. And then we kind of published, and on the day of publication, we um, decided it would be fun if we found up these poisoners because we had their phone numbers. So Navani calls them up, like, say, hi, I'm Navani. Why did he poison me? This is in a 33-minute YouTube video with over 28 million views. Yeah, that was a kind of, uh, we built up to that. So what we did is used a phone number spoofing app, which allowed us to pretend to be calling from the FSB head office, called one of the FSB officers. So on his call, their ID had the FSB head office. And then Navalny pretended to be an assistant of one of the more senior kind of FSB kind of officers, way, way above this guy. Konstantin and demanded a full report on what happened. And it was, it, if we hadn't have caught it on camera, no one would have believed us. It, and Navalny basically bullied him into doing it as well. He was Because the guy was like, oh, we sh- are you sure we should be doing this on an unsecured line? And he said, no, this is really urgent. It has to be done now. You must tell me. And then he was like, asked him to give like performance reviews for each of the people involved. The thing is, because we had all this information about the case, we could give him names. Samuel? Yeah. Uh, Vasily Kalashnikov. 
And he would basically say, oh, yeah, he did this, he did this. And that was confirming every single part of our investigation. Now, we didn't publish that on the day because we knew um, Putin would be giving his big yearly press conference and he would be asked about this. And we wanted to see his response before we published the audio of this conversation. So he, he gives his press conference. He's asked about Navalny. And he, he basically says, <laughs> if we were going to kill him, we would have done it properly. Then on the following Monday, we published this video of this guy saying, oh, I don't know why it went wrong. Oh, it's probably because they got him off the plane. Explain exactly where they put the poisoning on his underpants, you know, all these different kind of details. And that made it a really, really big story in Russia and internationally as well. So essentially you pantsed Putin. Yeah, I mean, we, we knew he would be giving this talk. This was a kind of strategic choice when we were publishing because we knew if we he had something on record about it and we still had this thing in the tank, it would, yeah. Yeah, it would be more entertaining for the uh, readers. Well, this is dangerous work. Going after Putin has put you on the Kremlin's radar. They have no problem killing people. They've referenced Bellingcat's work before. You have a family. How worried are you about retaliation yourself? I mean, I'm certainly a lot more careful. Um, I mean, I, in a sense, coronavirus has been, you know, always a blessing because I haven't had to go to on foreign trips where, you know, stuff could happen. I haven't been staying at hotel rooms with balconies and, you know. But it's, you know, you have to have that kind of level of paranoia. There was, there was one time I was staying at a hotel in the Netherlands where um, I'd stayed there several times before for previous years. And um, there was a knock on the door one evening I was there. And a door opened and there was a guy in a suit with a name badge for the hotel saying, oh, Mr. Higgins, thank you for staying here so many times. We'd like to give you this gift. I was like, oh, okay, this is a bit weird. But when I closed the door, I thought that guy could have been literally anyone with a name badge he picked up from a reception. And I can't eat these cookies they've given me, even though there's a lot of them. They look delicious. So I ended up throwing them in the bin. And it was quite gutting when I came down the next morning and checked out. And they said, oh, we hope you enjoyed the cookies that uh, we gave you yesterday. You suddenly become Jason Bourne in this situation. (laughs) Like, I'm not going in there. It's the crappy parts of being Jason Bourne. It's the kind of, you know, having to be a bit more careful. What about your family? Do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, again, I mean, my wife, she um, kind of is concerned kind of about my safety and, you know, that kind of stuff. My kids are quite young, so they don't quite understand, um, you know, what I'm doing. I mean, they're, they're six and nine, so maybe as they grow older and get a bit more context to what I'm doing, they might start worrying a bit more. We'll be back in a minute. If you like this interview and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app, You'll be able to catch up on Sway episodes you may have missed, like my conversation with the CIA's chief technologist, Don Myricks, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. More with Elliot Higgins after the break. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging. Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, secure the trust of your customers, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, HIPAA, and more. Plus, save time by completing security questionnaires with Vanta AI. Thousands of global companies use Vanta to automate evidence collection and unify risk management. Get $1,000 off Vanta by going to vanta.com slash hardfork. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash hardfork for $1,000 off. I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I think I know this connection. Look, 
Bath is a city in England, Sandwich is a city in England, Reading is a city in England, and I'm gonna guess Derby is a city in England. I started Wordle 194 days ago and I haven't missed a day. The New York Times Games app has all the games right there. I absolutely love Spelling Bee. I always have to get genius. I've seen you yell at it and say that <laughs> should be a word. Totally should be a word. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. At this point, I'm probably more consistent with doing the crossword than brushing my teeth. When I can finish a hard puzzle without pins, I feel like the smartest person in the world. When I have to look up a clue to help me, I'm learning something new. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. So let me ask you about the ethics because the New York Times doesn't partner with Navalny in that way. Do you see a problem in partnering? Because you're doing journalism in a different way. Why didn't you do the investigation on your own or at least had to have an arm's length relationship with Navalny? Well, I mean, we, we do a lot of collaborative work at Bellingcat anyway. I mean, it's not usually with the, you know, the targets of poisonings, but um, it, it's just kind of our natural way. You know, if we are working on a topic, we'll find another media organization who is working on the same topic in a, in a more local sense. And we've done that on a whole range of topics. It's just in the case of Navalny he was the victim of a poisoning attack and he was also this big kind of media figure in Russia. So he's really the ideal person to approach with this. Plus it meant by working with him, we could get more details of his kind of travel records and other information that we didn't have, which is unusual. Well, most journalism organizations would want to do that maybe, but don't do that, right? I think as well, because Bellingcat is kind of this weird hybrid of an organization as well. Like in a way, the journalism is one outcome of the kind of investigations that we're doing. I think primarily we're investigators. And then what we do with those investigations can be a whole range of different products. And become journalism. Yeah, I mean, we, we break down our process, you know, to three steps, identify, verify, and amplify. So we identify material, verify it, and then we amplify it. But that amplification stage can be a kind of more traditional kind of journalistic output, or it could be, you know, a document for, uh, you know, justice and accountability process. It could be a YouTube video, a documentary. It could be all of them because it's all using the same verified information. So journalism is just a byproduct in, of the investigation. It could be a byproduct. So Russia's state-run uh, Russia Day did come after you. Um, they honed in on one line item for £1,800 paid to Bellingcat from the UK Foreign Office in December of 2018. It was for, quote, consulting management and public relations. Can you explain what that was about? Yeah, so um, basically we run uh, workshops um, that are publicly available, you know, anyone can join them. And someone did a freedom of information request and found us in kind of one of these kind of things. And basically there was a um, a journalist from Eastern Europe who went on one of our courses and then had their course fee paid by the Foreign Commonwealth Office, um, which was £1,800, which was the same as the other twenty participants paid. So that's pretty much the entire story. But of course, Russia today has been desperately looking for proof that we're secretly working for MI6. And, you know, this was all the proof they needed. It's this kind of six degrees of CIA station they like to play. If they can find one connection, then the rest just come naturally. I mean, the, the, the thing is, it's evolved over time. And, you know, early on, it was really more the Russian media who are like, you know, Russia Today and Sputnik, who were either like saying, I'm some amateur and no one should listen to me, or that may, I'm probably connected to the intelligence service. And that's certainly, that intelligence service angle certainly ramped up after the scribble thing. Sure. So let me ask, are you connected to the intelligence services? No, we're not. And it's, um, you know, many, many people seem to think that. And one of the fun things about the internet is the people who think that all find each other and then 
constantly tell each other that, yeah, we're working with the CIA and make all these connections. Right. But it's like when you've got Russia saying that, and like the Russian um, ambassador to the UK gave a press conference following the Scripple poisoning where he repeatedly said that Bellingcat was working for the British Deep Establishment, as he called it, and was um, paid for by the intelligence services. But when the journalists asked him for evidence, he said, oh, well, we have a feeling. I can't show you the evidence. And this is the thing. If Russia cannot show evidence that Bellingcat is working for the CIA, then what hope does, you know, a bunch of kind of conspiracy theorists on the internet have? Because Russia has the resources behind it. But has the CIA or any other intelligence service like MI6 ever offered you leads and information? Or you say you don't do sources, but would you accept help from those sources? No, I... I I, I suspect they're a little bit worried about exactly what we would do with that. I mean, I, I probably, if the CIA came to me, I'd probably tweet, oh, the CIA's just been in touch because I'm not, I'm not the kind of person who's great at keeping secrets. I mean, it's like, it seems like spy work, but it's like all publicly available information we're using. It's not often like really big secrets. Right. So you wouldn't want to accept their information. Yeah. And we, the thing is, it would be, again, not open source if they did that. Like, if they came to us with a list of YouTube videos, that would just be more weird than anything. So if they came to us with a bunch of secret videos saying you can't tell us, you know, telling where you got this from, then that would be a completely absurd situation for us to be into. And we wouldn't accept any information from any kind of intelligence service anyway. Okay. Um, So I want to talk about Bellingcat's methods because you do things like paying for data sets, like you talked about, which is probiv, as they call it in Russia. Um, You're buying black market data, essentially. Hmm. Uh, it's basically Russia's this huge corrupt bureaucracy. So you can buy any data you want from phone records but to passport application forms of anyone you want. So we've been using that data, which obviously isn't open source in a traditional sense, even though it's very available to anyone. Um, but there we would use multiple other sources to cross-reference every single piece of information to make sure it's correct and it hasn't been altered. And it's like, okay, there's one assassination here, there's one here, or here's the secret weapons lab. And it was all coming from this data. So, um, you know, considering the value and the importance of this, we thought it was kind of justified ethically. Because if we didn't do it, then there was a good chance that these guys would still be doing what they were doing today, murdering more people. Okay. So you you weigh that. In a way, journals originally wouldn't pay for it. Now, would you pay for controversial facial recognition software like Clearview AI? Have you considered that? Um, not... The thing is, it's, it's difficult. I mean, if... Having kind of facial recognition, kind of reverse image search is something that we've used elsewhere in other um, investigations. Like in Russia, there's sites that have basically scraped the entire social media site we contact her and use facial recognition. So if you plug in a picture that you've taken or found online, it will find a matching face in that entire data set. And that will include Russian soldiers, Russian spies, like really like useful information. So I can see the value of that. But we wouldn't be like going, okay, we've got this facial recognition match. That's the job done. Let's go and arrest that guy, as often happens with some of the people using these platforms, especially, you know, US police. It's tricky as well, because, you know, Clearview clearly is scraping a huge amount of information that I suspect it doesn't necessarily have the right to be scraping. Are you using Clearview? No, we're not, no. I, I think as well, because of our position, we scare off some organizations like Clearview who might have a slight degree of shadiness around the way they collect data because they don't want to be an article on Bellingcat. Right. Okay. So t- the, talking about information selling, TMZ pays for information. I know Harvey very well. The National Enquirer pays for tips. Rupert Murdoch pays for it. Um, should, in the future, American news outlets think about paying for data? Is that the way journalism is going, bought and 
paid for in a way? The, the thing with Russia is it is extremely unique in the way that you can buy this kind of data. It's not like you can do this in any other country in the world that we've kind of look, looked into or, you know, invest, done investigations in. So it is very unique. It's also very unique of the severity of the case that we're looking into, you know, nerve agent assassination programs targeting, obviously. You didn't pay to hack into her phone. Yeah, we aren't paying people to like hack into stuff or anything like that. It's, and one thing we did when we published the Navani case, we knew straight away that Russia would say, oh, this is MI6 or the CIA giving me information. So we did a very long piece explaining where this information came from, what source, you know, what those kind of sources were without linking directly to the sources. But that meant media organizations inside Russia, as this story was kind of, you know, being attacked by the Russian government, actually went and brought the same data and said, oh, actually, this is exactly what Cat says it is. And that actually undermined the attempts to attack Bellingcat for, you know, doing this investigation. So even though it's not open source in the traditional sense, it's so freely available that even with a little bit of kind of understanding you of it, you can that. go and do it yourself. Yeah. And this is why I think when we're having this conversation about the ethics of using this kind of data, it's very difficult to put it in the context of other countries because you don't have that situation. Like you wouldn't be able to do that in the US. But you certainly can buy information. Oh yeah, absolutely. And But it's also, what are you buying it for? I mean, if you're buying it for some celebrity gossip, then you know, I don't think there's any kind of justification for that in my mind. Yeah. So Fusion GPS is another entity that does that says they do open source investigations. Fusion is famous for commissioning the infamous Steele dossier on President Trump. That work was thought to be funded by unknown Republican client during the Republican primary. Fusion was founded by a former Wall Street Journal reporter, Glenn Simpson, uh, who left journalism to make money. As he put it, we don't use the word sold out. We use the word cashed in. Explain how Bellingcat is different. Well, I mean, Bellingcat now, is, as it is, is actually a charitable foundation in the Netherlands. So we aren't a private company that's trying to do this work for profit. We're funded through um, donors, you know, small donors and kind of larger kind of organizations. We're funded from running workshops. So... It's, for us, it's not about making a profit to kind of make ourselves rich and happy and, you know, we don't really care about, you know, what's happening. We're doing this because we want to grow and develop the field of online open source investigation and look at where it can be applied in a whole range of different fields. That's why at the moment we're doing a lot of focus, for example, on justice and accountability and developing online open source investigation methodologies and processes that we can use in these kind of justice and accountability focused investigations, knowing that they meet a standard that they can be used in a courtroom. I, I get that. But th I think the question, I think it's a fair one to ask is, who are you actually accountable to? Now, I know you're a chair nation in the Netherlands. Uh, you have an independent supervisory board to oversee Bellingcat management, but it's, uh, and if you said, if we fail to live up to board members scrutiny, they may take action against any of us, but there's only three names listed, uh, a tech entrepreneur in Amsterdam, a pretty well-known international policy director at Stanford's Cyber Policy Center, um, and a director of Cultural Center in Amsterdam. So they don't ring out, you know, Bob Woodward to me or something like that. I mean, not that he would be necessarily the right person to pick for here, but who are you actually accountable to? Well, I mean, this comes in a number of different forms. I think we do have the, you know, this supervisory board and, you know, we are accountable to those people. And it's something that we're growing as the organization is growing as well. Um, we're also, you know, legally accountable as well. There's any organization is when we publish something. You can be sued. Yeah. Plus, we're also accountable in the sense that we're willing to go to court with the information that we have and sit in front of a judge and explain it in detail and be cross-examined as well, which I think is something that's you know very unusual as well. So there's that accountability there. Also, if we publish stuff that's untrue, you know, we're accountable to the people who are reading us. 
So we have to kind of be you know, very careful about making sure that we're, what we're publishing is accurate, that it can be stood up, not just for our audience, but also you know, to a courtroom, both from the perspective of being sued, but also actually using this evidence for accountability. And you know, also just accountable to the supervisory force. Right, but who chose these three individuals? Did you? Not myself personally. It was, uh, we now have a management team as well. So it's not a kind of WikiLeaks situation where I'm the Julian Assange of Bellingcat. No, then you'd be in an embassy without a cat, an actual cat, but go ahead. <laughs> Then uh, I'm part of a uh, uh, board of directors at Bellingcat. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's myself, uh, our business director, and my colleague, Eric Toller, who was one of the first people who joined Bellingcat. But how did you get these individuals and can they fire you? No, yeah, they can fire me. Part of the reason we became a charity was to make sure that I couldn't become the king of Bellingcat and do what, what I wanted to. Also, because we're required to have a yearly audit because we wanted to be transparent about who was funding us and where this money was coming from. So, uh, you know, we approached figures. Um, so Marjorie Schacht is someone that I had known from kind of doing some work around Brussels. The other two people I didn't know, but they were recommended to us as people who kind of understood the areas we were working in. And we wanted a supervisory board as well that wasn't just made up of investigators who could get very excited about our investigations. We wanted people who had an understanding of, you know, when we're getting a bit overexcited or when... Is that going to get larger? That board going to get larger? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're we're growing as an organisation. I mean, generally we've doubled in size every single year since I launched. I mean, I I launched Mm -hmm. in 2014 with a Kickstarter for about $80,000 and we've basically doubled in size every year since then. And now we have, I think our budget is about 2.1 million dollars now. There's no journalist on on the board. That's really interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, we did have a journalist on the board. Um, the thing is, the journalists we know are all very excited about Bellingcat's work. And we wanted people who wouldn't get excited about Bellingcat's work every single time we were going, oh, we've got a new investigation. Because they wanted to be 100% sure we had a reason for doing what we were doing. You could put Dick Cheney on it. No, I, I really <laughs> don't. Oh, gosh. That made me feel dirty if I did that. I'm saying he doesn't like the media <laughs> and he has a lot of a spy experience. I think you'd be... <laughs> That'd be terrible, no. So let's finish up talking about the business. You mentioned the workshops. How are you paying your bills? So we get, I think, about um, 30% of our yearly income from running workshops. And they were in person, but they're now all online. We have about, I would say about 10 to 15% comes from small individual donations. So this would be from things like Patreon or direct donations through the websites of our readers. Then the remaining kind of percent, it comes from a combination of different um, funding organizations. I think we've got like eight or nine. We're actually about to publish our um, yearly audit. So it'll all be on there for anyone who really cares about the nitty gritty of it. Okay, but not a big, you know, Bill Gatesian kind of thing, or suddenly. Yeah, I mean, we, we, it would be, you know, be nice if someone came along and gave us a billion dollars to do with what we want. But we actually rather prefer that we have not lots of different sources of income because then we're never really kind of yes. like if someone says, you know, I'm not going to pay you any more money unless you do this. We can say, well, goodbye. We'll post an article about that, and then yeah, don't be beholden to a billionaire. But one of the things you do is these workshops where you train people in open source investigations. Do you ever worry about? putting powerful tools in the hands of bad guys or teaching people, wrong people to avoid detection? We're pretty careful about who we invite. I mean, there's only so much we can do to look into the background of people, but generally we'll have people coming from places that are kind of big NGOs or news organizations. So they're kind of known quantities. I mean, we sometimes get private individuals who want to learn how to do open source investigations. But if someone comes to us saying, I'm from the, you know, British Ministry of Defense or I'm from the CIA, then we say no, because we don't train kind of military or kind of intelligence. Well, they don't tell you that. Well, this is the thing. It's also, how do we know who they are? But fortunately, 
you know, being open source investigators, we always have a bit of a dig into people to make sure they're representing themselves. Because equally, it could be someone coming from, you know, Russia Today or the Russian Ministry of Defense or the GRU who's coming to our workshops. So we have to be, you know, careful. But now everything's online as well. There's less kind of worry that our cups of teas are going to get poisoned whilst we're at a workshop. Fair point. So one of the things you also, aren't you training your competition? News outlets are hiring their own visual investigation teams. Um, the New York Times poached one of your investigators, Christian Tribert. Do you worry about giving away your secret sauce? I think we're still quite unique in the sense that it's not just about doing the open source kind of journalism side of it, but the other kind of outcomes that we have. So that keeps us fairly unique in kind of that sense, because, you know, the New York Times team does really amazing work. That kind of stuff for me is actually good to see because that's bringing the work we're developing into the mainstreaming. Would you consider selling Bellingcat to a major news outlet? Well, I mean, I we can't sell Bellingcat because it's a charitable foundation now, so it's, it's not something I could do, but I wouldn't want to do that anyway because once you sell it to one specific kind of organisation, like a news organisation, it becomes a news organisation. So has anyone tried to buy you? No, I mean, I've been trying to... The, 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 when I first started doing this and I realised it was something I wanted to do, I applied for jobs at like the BBC and ITV as a trainee journalist and I immediately and said got rejected. No, right? Yeah, and then now I'm training them, so that's very satisfying. But it's, it's like... The thing is, it's like now when people are actually asking me if I want to work for them, it's like, no, I'm really happy with where I am at Burlingham. That's funny. I, I still keep all the rejection letters I got from every newspaper <laughs> and there is a pile of them. And sometimes like, I really admire you, Kara, as a journalist. I'm like, you wouldn't hire me. Uh, anyway, uh, so Bellingcat is choosing specific cases and stories to investigate. As you said, there's, there's so many to do. Some uh, critics question your impartiality. How do you answer people who said, what's your agenda? Why do you pick what you pick? I mean, like with the Russia stuff, it's not like we wake up thinking we'll investigate Russia today. It's more like, you know, Russia wakes up and someone decides to assassinate someone and, you know, we discover yeah. that. There they go again, as yeah. Ronald Reagan would say. Um, but, you know, we're looking now at topics, for example, we've been looking at Columbia, uh, working with local journalists there during the protests and kind of mapping out the police and uh, security forces uh, violence there. There's like a million things we do across the world and we're only 20 people. We have to select a topic, a, a region where we can kind of start actually building the capability there through education, through collaboration. Regional versus you were looking into who is Q essentially tracing metadata and looking where Q drops occurred. Yeah, and that, that's actually come from a small community of um, kind of researchers who've been looking into that independently of Bellingcat, and we're now kind of giving them a platform where we can kind of review their work, have it edited properly, and then published on the website. So what would you like to investigate most of all right now? What is of interest to Elliot Higgins? Oh, God, that's so... I mean, there's... I mean, the, the situation in Ethiopia and at Rivera Trail was really interesting because we did a bit of work there and there was a lot of video footage coming from there that showed some really horrific stuff. But then you look at, you know, another part of the world where there's been stuff, and like the stuff that's happening, with, you know, Israel and Palestine is worth investigating as well. For me, it's always about, you know, seeing if there's any kind of sense of accountability that can be brought to what's happening. I mean, even in the smallest kind of senses, I mean, I've been helping an organisation, you know, just a few hours here and there called uh, dogloss.co.uk, which is a website for people people who've had their dogs lost or stolen. And we've been using a number plate analysis technique we developed to investigate murders to help um, detect dog thieves. And we've already reunited two dogs oh, wow. with their families. It's, a, it's literally just like a couple of hours' work. Well done, Elliot. The thing is, you don't usually get that. If you're investigating a Syrian war crime, it's like, okay, I will have a result in 10 years. So the cats are saving dogs, right? Is yeah. that really pretty much? It's the mice saving dogs. The mice, the mice who bell the cats are saving dogs. <laughs> it's very confusing. <laughs> All right. Elliot, thank you so much. I really appreciate this. Thank you. Bye. Cheers. 
Sway is a production of New York Times Opinion. It's produced by Naima Raza, Blake Nishik, Hiba El Arbani, Matt Kwong, and Daphne Chen. Edited by Naima Raza and Paula Schumann. With original music by Isaac Jones, mixing by Eric Gomez, and fact-checking by Kate Sinclair. Special thanks to Shannon Busta, Kristen Lin, and Lyriel Higa. If you're in a podcast app already, you know how to get your podcasts, so follow this one. If you're listening on the Times website and want to get each new episode of Sway delivered to you with a box of mysterious hotel cookies, download any podcast app, then search for Sway and follow the show. We release every Monday and Thursday. Thanks for listening. <laughs>